0: Of Cain and Abel, what's going to be taking place here in chapter four, and really the world changes once again here in chapter four. Chapter three, the world changes, and it changes forever. You know, but here in chapter four, it changes once more, and we see how quickly sin impacts all of creation, how quickly sin uh, impacts and brings to just the snowball effect of, of heavier sins and further separation from the Lord. Uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned here in these uh, few short. Uh, verses in this passage, but let's read here verses one through eight, and then we're going to jump straight into uh, verse number one. It says, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, "I have gotten a man from the Lord." And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an, an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. We have watched the progression, seemingly these ups and downs already of the Bible. Things are good. God makes all things. Things seem to be going uh, swimmingly. And then man falls into sin, plummets, hiding from God. God comes, talks to them, gives grace. And while he gives judgment, he gives grace. And and we find that Adam then calls his wife named Eve. And we'll look at that uh, just sort of again here in just a few moments. And we see this sort of Prospect of hope again with the promise of a coming Savior, the promise of one who will come and crush the head of the serpent. We're back on the mountaintop, but then we're back out of Eden. And for you and I, we able to see the grace and the mercy that is given by God saying, You're not going to be able to stay here, and I'm going to guard the way of the tree of life. And we have studied that. And now we get to chapter four, and boom, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. We're back up on the mountaintop, but then seven verses later, we're back at the bottom. Where we're back, we go from this is great, the promised one's here, things are going good, we've got the child that's promised, the the seed of the woman's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, to then instead of crushing the head of the serpent, he crushes the head of his own brother. It's the opposite of what should have happened, happens, and what we find is that this is going to continue the drama throughout the rest of the Bible that's going to be bringing us to the place where Christ will come, will die will be risen again the third day according to the Scripture, will be the the one who is the true promised one, the true Messiah, the true Lamb of God, who is the only one that can offer true atonement for sin and covering to bring us back to a better paradise where we will never, ever sin against the Lord again, where we shall be in His presence, never to be separated again. And may we long and look forward to that day, but I want to look here first of all at verse number one. As we look into this, we're going to see the two offspring in verses one and two here. And Adam knew his wife, uh, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, here. I want to address this first and foremost. This is Adam and Eve, they know each other. And to know each other is much more than going, Hi, I'm Adam. Oh, hi, I'm Eve, right? They've already known each other that way. But this is showing a, um, a sexual intimacy within the marriage relationship. This is fulfilling the purpose and blessing of marriage through knowing one another through intercourse. Now, you and I, because of the sinfulness of the world, the sinfulness of our own minds, this has become something that is dirty, that is grotesque, and it's the way in which society portrays such animalistic behavior, but rather this was to be a gift of God, and it was done so in the purpose of God to procreate, to um, replenish the earth, as he had, had said, and we'll look at that in a moment here. David Guzik writes, he says, "...there is power in the way of referring to sex." It shows the high interpersonal terms in which the Bible sees the sexual relationship. Most terms and phrases people use for sex today are either coarse or violent, but the Bible sees sex as a means of knowing one another in a committed relationship. New indicates an act that contributes to the bond of unity and the building up of a one flesh relationship. Biologically and psychologically, man and woman were created for each other. You don't have to do a whole lot of math to figure that out this is why God clearly states this from Genesis 1, all the way through the Bible we find that and He made them male and female. male and female, He created them. It is not just given to us in the Bible and for us to go, oh well, I guess that means there's two sexes, but that is exactly what this means biologically. You find even just the the absurdity of what we find today of those who would say that there are multiple genders uh, beyond. Uh, Male and female right you can go on Amazon and find t-shirts for sale that talk about different genders and gender equality all this crazy wild off the wall stuff and then when you go to choose what type of shirt it is it's either a a, a male shirt or a female shirt because you know they're made different how funny is that right even the term those who would say that they are bisexual right they would say that they are attracted to both male and female isn't it kind of strange that they would call themselves bisexuals, meaning that the very base of that word is bi, meaning two, because you will either be male or female? And so we have found that the absurdity of the reprobate mind that I firmly believe that we are seeing, not just here in America, by the way, this is happening on a global scale. We only see it in our American eyes and in our American world. But this stuff is happening globally right now. And I believe that shows us that the true coming of, of the day of the Lord And I believe it is soon. Uh, These are just, the Lord tells us not to look for signs, but these things are very much open for us. We should be looking for His return, not looking for an Antichrist, not just looking at the things getting worse around us. We should be looking for Christ to come because He could come at any moment. These are just things that should be reaffirming what the Bible has already told us. Now, the reason why I address this tonight is because God addresses this. Adam knew Eve, his wife, that is the purpose intercourse, sex, whatever you want to call it at this point is not designed to take place outside of the marriage relationship. Because what we are finding, what scientists are finding, politicians are finding, what people who do any sort of psychological studies, uh, psychologists themselves, people who work with young people especially, those who are having sex outside of marriage are having a tremendous amount of issues. There are young men and women, by the way, some would just think that the issue of pornography is just a, a male issue. It is not. You look statistically, it is equal and sometimes even inverted the other way uh, of the usage and indulgence of such. But what is happening is our society has become so over overly sexualized at a younger age and so much so at a younger age being overstimulated by the sexualization of everything around them that the idea of having sex just in marriage is absurd, but as well, they miss the fact that what they're finding now is that those who are partaking are suffering from severe mental, emotional, psychological issues because what we know now, both scientists and, of course, the theologians, if you will, we look at this and we realize that this is much deeper than just a physical thing that you can just eh, there's no emotion there's no depth here there is an incredible depth to what this union means and to why God created it but he specifically created it for the uh, the relationship of marriage it is designed as a gift of marriage to be enjoyed by uh, husband and wife and as well for the glory of God that between the two that life can continue and that in that relationship what is founded at the very beginning as we've seen in chapter 2 and 3 is what God places so central before he creates government, before he creates kings and judges and all these things, what does he create? The home. The home is the foundation of a society. And so what we see is that if a home is not operating correctly in the relationship between husband and And wife, Then the relationship between father and children, mother and children, it will be all out of sorts, all out of whack. And then that relationship between that home and the outside world will be even worse. And this is exactly where we see our societies crumbling and our churches failing as well today. We must take this very seriously. Husband and wife, though, by the way, were made to be intimate, not just physically in relationship, but in the depths of one's soul to literally be knit together that they truly do become one flesh and the bond of marriage. We must never encourage a young people just to get married so that way they can enjoy intercourse. Rather, we should be telling them that when they're dating, that they should be dating for a purpose. That the dating for a purpose, right, we used to call it courting, right? What You could call it a multitude of things. Nevertheless, I remember, and, and I grew up, and you, you're probably going to think different, but I, I viewed myself not as the, suave, good-looking gentleman than I am now, okay? Right? At one point in time, I was a little uglier than what I was now. I didn't have the, the beard and, and these. still had the dimple. That was working for me. But I remember the idea of understanding that I don't want to date someone that I would not want to marry, right? And so somewhere we've gotten this issue where we've got today what is called the hookup culture, where the, the, no one wants to be tied down to relationships, and no one certainly wants to be tied down to a, a marriage relationship. And now the marriage relationship is so looked down on that not only people don't want to get married, but then two people don't want to stay married. People will forget somewhere along the I don't know if preachers stopped doing it in ceremonies, till death do us part, for better, for worse, rich or poor, but now it's as long as it's good and as long as it's convenient, we'll stay married. And if not, right, then we'll, we'll or we'll stay married. And then when the kids turn 18, then we'll split, right? This is why marriages cannot be based off of children. They cannot be founded upon, um, well, if this is working for you, this is working for me, right? Or this helps us uh, monetarily or financially, right? It cannot be that. The marriage relationship has got to be founded upon, I love the Lord, you love the Lord, and He has placed a love for you in my heart, and He has placed a love for me in your heart. Therefore, we are together. The two have now become one. And what God has put together, let no man... Put asunder, right? What happened to that? It's it's there. It's biblical. And yet we've lost it, not just here in America, but in the church and globally, this is an absolute pandemic. But these two are meant to be knit together to literally become one flesh. They no longer have their life and their life, right? It's not Adam doing his own thing and he comes home, sees Eve, gives her a, a, a peck on the cheek and she's got a pot roast ready, right? And that, that's... That's not it. They are to be united together. It is no longer about what this one wants, what this one wants, but rather together. But in this, they become one flesh, not just through the physical union of intercourse, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. They should be of one. They should be as one. Now, this is as well to. Fulfill God's blessing and command that He had bestowed upon His creation that is able to procreate, but especially for mankind. You can see Genesis 1, 27, 28. So God created man in His own image, and the image of God created He Him. Male and female created He them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, now, here's here's the blessing. It's not that God blessed them and then said the rest of the verse. It's that the rest of the verse is the blessing. Right? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Then in chapter 2, verse 22 through 25, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam uh, said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh and they were both naked the man and his wife and were not ashamed perfect place perfect marriage because there is no sin but now sin has entered in see before the fall they had a deep relational intimacy with one another and even with the lord it is sin which stains and separates relationships the reason why we have issues in marriages today is because there are issues first of all between a husband a wife and the lord Every individual. We've got to understand that long before we have issues horizontally, it's because there is an issue vertically. Now, you might say, well, it always, not always that way. Sometimes people are just obstinate, or you don't know my wife, or you don't know my husband. We've got to understand here that both hearts in the marriage have got to be vertically right before the Lord if we expect them to be going together in one flesh as they're you're supposed to be. This is why the Bible is very clear, Old and New Testament, that we are to, when we are married, to... Marry someone who loves the Lord as well, right? This is why we would not recommend, well, you know, Susie loves the Lord, but she thinks, you know, Jim Bob is really cute, right? And we tell Susie, you know, well, maybe you can just convince through marriage Jim Bob to to trust the Lord. Maybe you'll just win him over. Here's what I used to tell our youth group, and here's what was told to me. Don't missionary date, right? Right? Don't view yourself as, well, if I'm just real good to them, then they'll they'll eventually just come around and trust the Lord and they'll want to. Well, they might. I've watched God do such with my own parents where where throughout years, God has used the example of my mother to, uh, to uh, to, to allow my father to one day come to Christ. Praise God for that. But it wasn't designed that way. It was designed for this one to know the Lord and this one to know the Lord to be united together in the Lord to then procreate and make children who then know and love the Lord and serve the Lord and then go out. And do the same thing. But here, somewhere along the lines, we have found out it doesn't quite work that way all the time. And why doesn't it? Because of sin. It doesn't take long in the Bible and doesn't take long for you and I to understand the effects of sin. Sin is what ruins marriages and relationships, sin is what truly has stained and separated all of the world and all of society from the Lord and from the way of which God had designed things to be. The reason why things are not the way that they're supposed to be today is because of sin. Now as we look here in the rest of verse 1 and 2, I want us to look tonight at the birth of Cain. Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, hear the word Cain, his name, it's important, a name. We find that a lot with the Bible characters especially. Not as much today, right? Susie and Jim Bob, they're just called Susie and Jim Bob because somebody probably in their family was named Susie and Jim Bob, right? But the names in the Bible certainly had some, some depth of meaning. Now, here's what Cain means. <clears throat> the name literally means a possession or, as some have thought, acquisition. Eve's comment, I have gotten a man from the Lord, might be rendered... I have received a male from the Lord. Now, this is a, a beautiful thing. Now, this is a wonderful thing. Anytime that life enters into the world, because you and I know this, and because it's a truth of God and His Word, and it's written upon our hearts, when life enters the world, it is a precious gift from God. Now, granted, it might take male and female to create a child, and it might take husband and wife to raise children, but ultimately, we know that it is the Lord who is the one who forms and fashions us in our mother's womb, It is he who has done these things ultimately, but it is he. And we, we miss this sometimes because here in Genesis from chapter one to chapter 50, we're covering, you know, about 3000 years of of history here. So God gives us this big, broad thing and, and we miss all the details. But as we see, and God scooped up dirt, formed and fashioned Adam and breathed the breath of life into him. What is he also doing? Well, he's not just taking some Play-Doh and then, boom, there's a man, right? He is creating the very fabric, his DNA, all of which is going to be necessary to one day create even you. Through the DNA structure and processes of genetics, through the way in which Adam was going to be designed with Eve to be able to come together and procreate, they didn't have to try to figure it out, work it out, or or sit out and go, I wonder how this works. They knew it was ingrained in them. Only God could do such. Th- this can't come from chance. This can't come from from nothing. This comes from a, a God who designed lovingly these things. And as we look at our human bodies, this is why the issue today of the LGBTQ plus movement of looking at transgenderism and the, um, the downgrade of what we're seeing all around us as society. This is why it is very important because what it does is it says that being who God designed you and created you to be as either a male or female, it's not good enough. We can do better or that we know better. How wrong of us to think that we know better than God or think that we can do something that God messed up on. God did not mess up when he created someone male or female. We were intended to be who we are. Therefore, as his image bearers, give him glory for that and live in light of that. Now, Cain comes into the world. Possession. His idea is, here's his little gift. Now, every mother, when they hold their child, no matter what they look like, they're always going to say, this is the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. Right? Everyone always hears that. Right? Everyone always says that. And everyone always, when they see a new baby, always is polite enough to tell the mother the same thing, whether they think it or not. But here, perhaps Cain really was to Eve. This is showing this idea that now in this moment, Cain is everything to her. Why? Because just a little while ago, she was naked and afraid of God, but then God said, it will be through your seed that there will come a Redeemer. And now... Here, not only is she holding her baby, but she believes very much so that she could be holding her Redeemer. Every mother believes that their child will be great, but certainly Eve here is thinking, my child will be the greatest of great. He's going to be the one that's going to crush the head of that old serpent who tricked me into giving to my husband who then made us fall. Phillips writes, When Cain was born, his mother thought he was Christ. She thought that already... The promised seed had come. The promised one who would crush the serpent's head. See, the entire hope of Adam and Eve, as well as the entire human race, is the fulfillment of God's promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent. If the seed doesn't come, and God's promise is not fulfilled, then God would be a liar. What is God going to do with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? He's going to promise a seed. And what will happen? Each one, as we see, will wait, will wait, Wait, and even a couple of them are going to take things in their own hands and get themselves into a mess. But God, who is rich in mercy, still works through those situations to eventually bring the coming promised Messiah. When God promises, God will fulfill. And He does so in His time, His plan, and in His way. But this begins the Bible motive of people faithfully believing God's Word and trusting in a final judgment and victory. Now that sounds strange, looking at the coming of, of Cain. But what would it mean for the seed of the woman to be born and then to crush the head of the serpent? Well, that would mean a fulfillment of God's word, God's promise, a provision of God's redemption, and it would mean that then perhaps Adam and Eve could then return back to the way of the tree of life. In their minds, certainly. Why? Because everything now for their whole life is going, how can we get back to where we were? And now for the rest of all of humanity, what is, what is the rest of the Bible looking like? How can we get back to the presence of God? But man cannot do such on his own. Man can never get into the presence of a holy God on his own. Man can never save himself on his own. Man cannot do these things. It must be the work of the Lord. But it shows as well, though, that not only that redemption would come if this child would be the one to crush the head of the serpent, but it would show that God would be the one who would bring about a final judgment against that serpent who had tricked uh, Eve. It shows as well that God has the final victory and say. It shows as well, as we've already seen in studying Genesis, that when God had an end in the beginning, he already had an ending plan and that the one who does crush the head of the serpent there on the cross ultimately one day the last enemy to be destroyed is death and one day in revelation chapter 20 what do we find the devil himself the false prophet the antichrist even hell itself is what it's cast away into a lake of fire that's good news isn't it but Adam and Eve don't have revelation chapter 20 yet but you and I do therefore when we read In Genesis or Exodus, Leviticus, when we see our own life crumbling around us, know this, that one day every enemy of God will be destroyed. Praise God for it. And on that day, I do not believe for one moment that we will look and go, oh, me, give him one more chance. No, I believe that we will celebrate for God, our glorious God, will have that full and final victory and judgment upon all who have ever gone against him. And praise God that if you were trusting Him right now, that you're not going to be one of them. I don't want to face the, the Lord now for the things that I'm going to have to give account for. God certainly showed me in the past couple years, especially pastoring and trying to pastor through through COVID, that He brought a, a different seriousness to my heart with this. That every time I preach, very well it could be the last time that I have people in front of me for any reason. And Two, it could very well be my last time anyways. And that one day I will stand before the Lord for every decision I've made, for every direction I've taken a church or people or led them in the word or out of the word. We must understand that we will still stand before Him, but I want to thank God that I will stand before Him as His own and not as His enemy. Now, the great thing about and she conceived and bared Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Well, see, this is the very reason Adam had called her Eve in the first place. Because through her life would come. Go back to Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Look at verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, first of all, yes, biologically, she was the mother of all living. You wonder who you related to somewhere down the line? Everybody in this room. That's right. You all married your cousin. No, I'm just, ki- just kidding. Just kidding, all right? Right? Think about this, though. We all go back to who? Adam and Eve, don't we? That's it. Biologically. But as well, though, we see that the thing that is being done in verse 20 is not just saying, well, it's going to be through us that life's going to come because that's the only way that we can reproduce, but rather the fact that it's through her that spiritual life can come because it's going to be through her seed That the Redeemer will come. Here in this moment, they go, well, this must be it. Here, God's promised right then and there. But just like us, Adam and Eve think that God has to work on our time. God doesn't. God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe Adam and Eve a Redeemer at all. But yet He's promised one. Phillips writes, But she was wrong. She was right in believing that the Messiah would come and that He would be of her seed. Let me pause there. Why was she right in believing such? Because God had said so. God had spoken it, so why would you not believe it? As a matter of fact, for them to trust Adam to call her Eve and for Eve to say, the Lord has given me a man-child, right? What is that? It's faith and trusting. What God has said must be true. It is trusting what we've been talking about. God's promise, His Word, and His provision, His work. That God promised in His Word that this would take place and that God provided in His work. And that is found in Christ. But It's not found in Cain. It says, Phillips continues on, She was wrong in thinking that Cain was the one. And before long she had cause to change her mind. That first babe born into a sin-cursed world soon manifested his temper tantrums His inborn ability to deceive and and lie. His self-will and pride. Likely enough, before long, she thought that that firstborn son of hers more likely to be the seed of the serpent. It doesn't take long for a mother who certainly still loves her child every moment until the day that she dies to realize that that child is a sinner. Even we find that you know this, you don't have to teach a child to lie, do you? You don't have to teach a child to just cry for any old reason. Fed, dry diaper, the whole thing. Nothing should be wrong. But guess what? They're still going to have a fleshly, fleshy meltdown. Why? Because we are very much in a sin-cursed world, and we don't have to be taught how to try to get our way in the world. We don't have to be taught how to sin or to manipulate. It's very much in our nature. And I'm sure as much as Eve loved Cain, it did not take too long for her to realize, boy, he's not a perfect child. Well, if Cain wasn't a perfect child, let me ask you, could he be the one to crush the head of the serpent? No. I'm sure it didn't take long for her to realize this, but perhaps she held on for hope. Nevertheless, we find that only one was perfect, and only one was a perfect child, and one was a perfect man, and it was the God-man. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the fulfillment of the promise and provision of God. Furthermore, we see that Cain, unlike Adam and Eve, is born with a sinful nature. What were they born with? What were Adam and Eve born like? Well, they weren't born, were they? <laughs> no, they were formed and fashioned by the hand of God Himself and not in a womb. One came from the dirt, formed, fashioned, and breathed the breath of life. The other one was taken from a rib of the one who was first created. Eve, taken from Adam. God forms and fashions her. But Then not Cain and Abel. Not you and me. Born with a sinful nature. And as we see in Romans chapter 5, because not just of his physical father, but his spiritual father, Adam. And by the way, your spiritual father, when you're born, Adam. You were born sinful nature. In a sin-cursed world. And you were born with the destination to one day die. No one will leave here alive. Unless the rapture happens, praise God. Even so, come Lord Jesus, that's what we want. Nevertheless, though, the Lord tarries, you will not make it out of here. And why is that? Because of our physical and spiritual father, Adam. But praise the Lord, the moment he adopts us, you might taste a physical death, but it'll all be just for a moment. Just like that. And then one day, glorified, renewed, and to, to forever be with the Lord. To never have to worry about such again. Another commentator writes, That she sees in the birth of this son the commencement of the fulfillment of the promise and thankfully acknowledge the divine help in this display of mercy is evident from the name Jehovah, the God of salvation. That's the word Lord here, in case you were wondering. The word Lord here the English translated of Jehovah, or the God of salvation. Now, here, the commentator does note this, and I wanted to give this to you as well. The use of this name is significant. Although it cannot be supposed that Eve herself knew and uttered this name, since it was not till a later period that it was made known to man, and it really belongs to the Hebrew, which was not formed till after the division of tongues, yet it expresses the feeling of Eve when receiving the proof of the gracious help of God. Here, certainly... The idea if we were to understand, I have gotten a man from the Lord or Jehovah, meaning I have been given a man, a man child from the God of salvation. Meaning this could be the one that God has sent to save. Could it not be so? Nevertheless, though, we do find that the usage of this word is certainly showing a trust in God to bring about salvation and redemption as He promised. That's who God is. It's what God does. And truly, that's the whole message of the Bible. It's the whole drama. It's the whole uh, playing out of the rest of Scripture. Is God has promised in chapter 3, verse 13 of Genesis, a Savior. And the rest of the Bible is going to be prophesying that Savior, revealing that Savior, and then preaching that Savior. And now, for you and I, looking forward to that Savior's coming again. But it's all about Christ. And the arms of Eve was not the Messiah, but rather the first murderer. What a sobering thing when we get to verse 8 and we go and we see here the one that mother thought could be the Savior, the Redeemer, the sent one of God, is instead going to be the one who's going to kill her other son to murder him, to slay him. And Eve will experience the hope and heartbreak both through her husband and children which were to be her ultimate blessings remember back in Genesis 316 unto the woman he said I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee we talked about here the two greatest blessings to Eve are going to be the fact that she has a husband and gets to bear children and yet Both of those things are going to bring her the greatest sorrow in her life. You know what else we're going to find? With Sarah and Rebecca, and all the way through as we look at the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in Genesis, we're going to find that their greatest blessing and greatest problem in their life, greatest hope and greatest heartache, is their husband and their children that brought great joy and also great sorrow. So what was designed to be such a blessing to her is now going to cause her not just to have the greatest hope and joy in life, but as well the greatest and deepest of heartbreaks. But The big picture theme here, and we're going to wrap this up tonight before we get too far into it. Bearing children will be incredibly important to the characters of the Genesis account, especially to those who are following by faith, the covenant of God and the God of the covenant. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even going back to Noah. Children are going to mean something. Why? Because God makes a covenant with Abraham. I will give you land, seed, and blessing. And it's to be unconditional in this covenant and it's to last forever and forever. I will make a people who was no people. That's who God is. It's what God does. In this, what we find as well, though, that through this, there will be an incredible amount of heartbreak in the waiting for the promise of God, in the waiting for the provision of God, but nevertheless, what God promises, He will provide. We're going to watch these people go through an incredible, difficult journey to see this, but the way in which we experience the presence of God and the way in which we see God's blessing and fulfillment of His Word It's only found one way, and it is the way of faith. It is not the way of Cain, but rather it's the way of Abel. The way of one who trusts the promise, provision of God. Second, we see this, that what will be seen in the life of Cain and Abel, Ishmael and Isaac, we forget about all Ishmael, don't we? Isaac wasn't firstborn, and yet Isaac was the promised seed. How about this? Cain and Abel, let's go back to that. Cain and Abel. Which one was firstborn? Cain or Abel? Cain. Well, does Cain get the promise? No. He ruins that pretty quick, don't he? But God's got a plan. How about this? Ishmael and Isaac? Ishmael, firstborn. Firstborn, you know why he was firstborn? Because he was the one born of Abraham saying, and listening to his wife who said, you know, God said he's going to get seed, but uh, here we are, and we're right old. So why don't you take my handmaid? And Abraham goes, okay. God gives life, but Ishmael would not be the promised one. Isaac would be. The younger one. How about this? Jacob and Esau. But which one came first? Esau. We always say Jacob and Esau, don't we? Why? Because the promise would be passed on to Jacob. But what do we find with Jacob? What do we find with Isaac? Faith. We find that God's plan to bring about the Messiah will never fail, did not fail, could not fail, would not fail no matter what the devil would do. Though the devil would cause many a stumbling block and many an issue, God's plan prevailed. And even though we find that Isaac... Sinned, and Jacob, oh swindling Jacob. That through faith God used them mightily. How about this? Ultimately that the coming salvation of the Lord will come God's way, by God's time, God's plan, by God's own provision. Turn with me now. We got a couple of verses and we'll be done. First Corinthians chapter one verse twenty five. First Corinthians one verse twenty five. I want to remind us of this truth. 1 Corinthians opens up, and Paul says, Here's what's important the cross. You know what's important every time we open the Bible from Genesis to 1 Corinthians to Revelation? The cross. Why? Because that's the whole theme, that's the whole message of the Bible. The cross. A promised redeemer, a substitutionary atoner, a mediator between God and man, the God man. He says, in verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now let me ask you this. Does God have any foolishness in him? No. Does God have any weakness in him? No. That means that all that God is, it's greater than all that man could ever produce. Greater than anything that man could ever conjure up. And this is why we can trust God. This is why we should trust God. Even though things don't go our way, even though things don't go in our time and our plan, I know the potter. I know the one who holds tomorrow. We know the one who is there. The one who has promised. And the one not just who has promised these things, but the one who is very present in the middle of the difficulty of waiting for the promise. He says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Isn't that true? God uses the weak. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base the things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. What we find is that through men like Isaac and Jacob Joseph, and Moses, and all the way down to the line. We don't find strong, mighty men of God. There's no such thing. Every strong, mighty man of God that you and I ever label as a strong, mighty man of God is not. I have a sign I have hanging above my desk. And I have it there for a reason to remind me of such. It is a quote that essentially is, is this, that there are no such thing as strong, mighty men of God. Only weak, frail, sinful men of a great and merciful God. That's it. We are nobody special. But that's just who God uses. That's what God does. Turn with me to Micah chapter 7. And if you can't find it, that's okay. I got it marked. I'm going to read it for you anyways. all right? Micah chapter 7, we'll be done. Micah is a wonderful minor prophet much prophecy about who? Jesus. But I love the way that Micah ends the book. In verse number 18. First, let me back up. Verse 15 through 20. to gets you the whole little passage here. According to the days of the coming out of the land of Egypt, will I show unto, thee, unto him marvelous things. The nations shall, shall see and be confounded at all their might. Why? Because the might of men is nothing compared to the weakness of God, as he just said. And God's got no weakness. They shall lay their hand upon their mouth, their ears shall be deaf, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, they shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth, they shall be afraid of the Lord our God, and shall fear because of thee. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not His anger forever because He delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquity. And Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham which Thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the day of old. So what is the promise of God here? Though we know that Cain isn't going to turn out quite right, I do know this. God promised a Savior. The Savior has come. And here we find in verse 18 and 19, who could have thought of salvation planned like this? None but God. Who is like God? Who is a God like Him that pardons iniquity? And yet, while He pardons iniquity, He does not violate His justice. You know why? Because the justice and mercy of God is both met at the cross that the justice of God is poured out upon His Son and not upon you so that Jesus gets the justice and the wrath and we get the mercy and the goodness. That's the whole message of the Bible. That's the truth that this world desperately needs. He says, and passeth by transgression of the remnant of His heritage. Remember, it was the very same God who said "You put the blood on the outside of that door and now pass by. We thank the Lord that we are covered and cleansed by the blood of Jesus and the Lord has passed by That the day of judgment when it comes. Praise God, I will not be found His enemy. He says, why? Because He delighteth in mercy. Truly what we find throughout the rest of the story of Cain, Abel, Seth, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, all the way through, is a God who delights in mercy. And his delight in mercy is very much seen at that bloody cross. that He can delight in giving us mercy when we deserve wrath. That's the whole Bible. That's the message that we really need tonight. And though we might look at Cain and Abel in the story and the account of it, and go, oh my, this is atrocious maybe once again look back to what God had just done in chapter 3 and go, oh my, sin, it's atrocious. But yet, where sin abounded, grace abounded. Where sins were many, mercy was more. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We're grateful for your goodness, your faithfulness. We thank you for your mercy tonight. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that you are faithful, you are good at all times, Lord. It's who you are. It's not just the things that you do and not just the things that you give. God, it's your very nature. Help us to praise you, to worship you, to adore you. And God, as we look at this, to to remember the truth that the Savior that you promised, the provision that you've promised, Lord, has already come to pass. And Lord, may we long and look forward to his return, that we might be with him one day. We love you. We thank you and praise praise you for all that you've done. Go forth and and, and prepare us to be used of you. Be with us now. And God, we just thank you for this time tonight. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed week. Lord willing, we'll see you guys Sunday morning.